Uh, let's go ahead and um, pray one more time, and then we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you yet again that we can come to learn of you, uh, to dive into your word. Lord, we desire to know more of you, to um, be conformed more and more to your image. And so as we continue to examine these characteristics, Lord, of your kingdom, those characteristics that are worked in us, Father, uh, would you grant us greater understanding? Uh, more importantly, would you grant us the ability, uh, the diligence to pursue after these things? Uh, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want, let's go ahead and uh, open our Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Here we read, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so we come to this last beatitude, if you will, this last beatitude I specify, I guess, in the sense of those that are worked in us. We obviously have one more that we'll look at next week. But of those that are truly worked in us, I look at this as kind of like the final one in that sense, because really if the next beatitude is one that I believe kind of occurs from outside of us as, as far as it being done to us, right, in the form of persecution and so forth. Uh, but this is something that obviously has worked uh, within us. But before we dive into this, what I kind of want to do is briefly look at where we have been. Um, that is not equal, but you get the idea. Um, what we have first looked at, right, was this idea of being uh, poor in uh, spirit. Uh, we then looked at uh, those who mourn, and we looked at the meek. We looked at uh, righteousness. We then looked at uh, being merciful. We looked at pure in heart. And now we come to peacemakers. And at the head of all of this, if you remember, as we kind of walk through, if you actually go back and were to listen to every one of these, what you should see ultimately is a focus or an emphasis on the foundation of Christ in each of these Beatitudes. That He is our foundation. He is who we look to. He is the reason, really, for each of these Beatitudes being worked in us. If you remember, as we kind of work through, what we said is that we're poor in spirit, and therefore we mourn. And because we are aware of our condition, there's this meek disposition that is developed within us that we no longer are uh, seeking to rebel against Christ. We are no longer um, opposed to Him working His will in us, right? And so there's a looking in this direction, if you will, to Christ. Christ who ultimately we find that when we see that there's no righteousness in us, right? Ultimately we see that He is our righteousness, right? That we are made to have right standing before Him and then therefore as a result of that we can now live righteously in this life. We can pursue holy living in this life. And then what, in a sense, we've looked at really, as I've kind of worked through this at least, um, is these things that then flow, in a sense, from Christ into our lives. That because he was our merciful and faithful high priest, right, we can now be merciful. Because of the mercy shown to us, we are now merciful to others. And because he was pure in heart, we are now pure in heart and can ascend that hill with him. If you remember when we looked at Psalm 24, right? We can now enter in with confidence because of what Christ has done. And then now we come to this last one that where Christ, as the peacemaker, the ultimate cosmic peacemaker, if you will, we can now be peacemakers. And so what we see is that really Christ goes to each of these, right? What we see in examining his work that one work on the cross in which there is the active and the passive obedience, right? What we see is the different ways in which that work, in a sense, relates to us. In the form of righteousness, merciful, purity, peacemaker, we take on his disposition of meekness. We mourned as he lived a life, in a sense, of mourning, weeping over Jerusalem, truly weeping over the state of people's condition. 
And in a sense, he willingly made himself, in some case, you have to be careful with how you described it, in some case, he made himself poor in spirit, taking on flesh and relying then upon the Father and so forth. And so this is what we see. And so we come to this last one, this one of being a peacemaker. And so I want to walk through it in a similar manner to how we looked at merciful. If you recall, what we did in that case, right, was we went through and we looked at the nature of God revealed in Jesus Christ as our merciful and faithful high priest and then looked at the implications that that had for us. So similarly here, what we're going to do is we'll define peacemaker. We'll go through and we'll look at why is there a need for peace? And then we'll look at the nature of God again, revealed in Christ who is our Prince of Peace, and then we now are peacemakers as a result of His work for us and in us. So that's how we're going to... You guys got this? If you're taking notes? Okay. Still kind of up there if you want to... So what is a peacemaker... So we'll look at just, uh, you know, over here, uh, peacemaker defined. How would you guys describe a peacemaker? Someone trying to dissolve tension, Mm. maybe. Yeah, go ahead. Right, yeah, go ahead. A mediator. That's a good way to look at it, too, especially when you look at Christ being that one mediator between God and man that brings those two sides together, right? Yeah, reconciliation, you'll see even in the verses that we look at, there's a close connection between peace and reconciliation, right? Um, If we look over at James 3.18, we get an idea here of what this looks like, at least. James chapter 3, verse 18 Here we read this. It says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Um, I think that this verse essentially sums up uh, the, the idea of peacemaker. Quite simply, we see that the peacemaker makes peace. And we're going to examine what that looks like, both with the world, first and foremost through Christ, and then for our implications, what does that mean for how we interact with the world? Can we have peace with the world? And what does that look like? And then finally, like, in the body, what does that peace look like? But you look at the fruit of the peace. It's as if peace, a peaceful atmosphere, is the breeding ground for what? What is the fruit of peace? Righteousness. So you want righteousness to flourish, right? Have unity, have peace, and that is the breeding ground for that fruit of righteousness, and I believe that this can take place in, in a couple different ways. Much like the work of Christ, there's the active and passive obedience. And I think there's an aspect of peacemaking that is passive, right? What do I mean by passive in this case to peacemaking? What do you think that conveys? Yeah, I think so. I think there's an aspect, right, where we are not easily set in upon. Much like we saw with meekness, that meek disposition. And that would make sense, right? The one who is meek is what? They're going to be a peacemaker. They're not easily set in on. They're not easily angered or riled up, right? And so there's a passive aspect to this disposition of being a peacemaker, to being a peacemaker. You're not easily angered. So it's kind of like the ability to overlook an offense. Yeah, He's not quarrelsome, right? right. So it's, it's, it's this aspect of, um, now I've got to spell this word right up here. Not quarrelsome. Yeah. What's that? Oh, yeah. I mean, in some sense, that's definitely an aspect, right, of being a peacemaker with the world, which we'll get into. Um, but then there's an active aspect to being a peacemaker now what do you think this conveys that's right actually pursuing it actively not just okay well i'm going to let peace kind of sit and not say anything right but you're actively seeking to pursue peace either when we get into the actual implications for ourselves 
ourselves with somebody else or somebody else with somebody else and kind of being that helper, right? Um, even what we choose to do and how we, what we choose to pursue with our time um, or the liberties that we, we have. Um, so this would obviously, under active, it's pretty clear there's action behind it. There's an actual pursuit, I guess we can say, right? Why do we need, why is there a need for peace? Yeah. Yeah, in some sense, right, when we look at the covenant that was established, we actually see it referred to in Ezekiel 37 as the covenant of peace. But why does peace need to be restored? Yeah, because in Adam, right, the condemnation, Adam being our federal head, we being in him, we, condemnation has come, judgment has been coming through all humanity. Yeah, in some sense, I'm hoping I can fit this all on the board, but there's a cosmic warfare, Right? Often when you speak of peace, you're, you're talking about they're not, I know, you're talking about uh, they're not being, uh, they're, they're, uh, there's, it's, the, the concept of peace is that there's like um, no war, there's no uh, animos, conflict, right, confrontation. But because of Adam, right, there is, right, there's a cosmic uh, warfare in the sense that, um, what we see is that as a result of what he's done, there's this upheaval, right? There's no peace between God and man. There's really no peace in a, in a true sense between man and man. And even the land itself, right? The earth, the creation groans, we read in Romans 8, right? Under these things as a result of man's sin. And so unless that crisis is resolved, right? That all of us, we've heard even Emilio say that all of us are born into a crisis, there's a conflict that we are born into that outside of Christ will not be solved. If sin is not dealt with, right, there's no way for there to be true peace. You can have superficial peace with people, but true peace, not possible outside of Christ. And that's what you see in a sense that whenever the culmination of all things happen and we're in Christ, right, and we're in the new Jerusalem, peace will reign, but are those in hell at peace with God? No. Because in a sense, they're still under Adam, if you will. That'll never change. There's an aspect in which they will never have peace with God because they were never in Christ. And so that is the only way for this crisis to be solved is ultimately to be found uh, in Christ. That's right. That's our nature. And not only that, I mean, I'll get into it a little later, maybe not since I reference it here, but Titus, right? Well, how does it describe us before Christ? Hateful, hating each other, envious, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were ultimately disobedient to the command in the garden. And then now because of that and our nature being totally depraved, we certainly rebel against God every day, right? And so there's a... It's almost like, you know, where it reads about storing up wrath for the day of wrath. The disobedience continues, right? And there's no peace until they look to the true peacemaker, which I had up here was Christ. Right? He makes that peace between God and man. That then, think about what we have, right? How much of us really have anything in common other than Christ? Outside of being united in Christ, would we have a lot of peace? Probably not. We would be fighting, bickering, slandering, gossiping, all of that. That because of our unity in Christ, we have peace with one another. You guys are getting me ahead of my notes. Um, and so, really, what we see is, in God's nature, how is he, how is he described in Scripture? If we look at, um, I believe it's Romans uh, 15... 33, uh, Romans 16.20, and Hebrews 13.20. These three identify God as the God of peace. That is what he is, or an aspect of what he is, because as we looked a couple weeks ago, he's also 
a merciful God in his very nature. That's how he describes himself even in Exodus, right? But we also see him described as the God of peace. And this makes sense, right? Yes, go ahead. Well, there's going to be different aspects that we get into as far as our implications, but the very nature of God, right, is one of peace. And what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm moving towards is this idea that in God, there's no disorder, there's no dissension, there's no division. Think about the Trinitarian unity within the Godhead. They are all working, in a sense, for each other, with, for the glory of each other. There's no, oh, I'm doing this, and then this one's doing that, right? Even in, in the covenant work of Christ, it was Christ, Father sent Christ, Christ did the work, and the Holy Spirit now points back to Christ. Yeah, so there's an... So there's a couple aspects to peace that you'd have to probably differentiate on. There's true peace. There's a, I mean, we've been using this word, but like a positional peace with God. Whether you feel it in your heart or not, you're truly at peace with God. You may not die in a state of peace because of whatever turmoil is going on inside, but that does not change the fact that you are at peace with God ultimately. Right. So there's that aspect. Now, the daily peace, sure, if you're not doing the things you ought to do, you're not spending time in the Word, you're not communing with Him in prayer, or you're uh, being beset upon by sin at various times, yeah, there's not going to be that peace. David even said, like, when he didn't confess his sin, what happened inside? His bones wasted away. I saw a hand. It was you. Okay. And so that's ultimately what we see is that Whenever, remember when we looked at God being merciful and we said, oh, what did he do as an as uh, aspect of his nature being merciful? He had mercy bound up, right? That's what we looked at. And it was shown forth in Christ. And same thing, him being a God of peace, what does he do? He sends to us. If we look, he sends to us in Isaiah 6, it's promised that a son would be born, right? And how does it identify him? What's that? Okay, the Prince of Peace. So the God of Peace sends His Son, the Prince of Peace, to make peace, right, for, between God and man, and even, um, I would argue, the restoration of all creation. Right? He is, He Himself being peace, the Prince of Peace. That is what He is. In His very being is peace. If we look over at Romans 5.1, we see this language very clearly. I don't think it could get any clearer. Romans 5.1, right? We read, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, right? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is clear that through Him, right, we have peace with with God because of his work. That's right. Yeah. You bring peace to the Christian, but then you bring peace to the world. Because I don't, what did you say in uh, Matthew? I bring, I, bring, I bring a sword. That's right. So we're going to get into that as far as the implications that we see because those are some questions we have to a- answer. What does peace with the world look like? So we'll get there. But that's a good point, right? Because that tells us right now that he's not bringing an earthly peace, right? It's not to bring peace to the land and to rule here, right? Clearly, if a sword's being brought, and if we read that verse further, which we will, I mean, it's splitting families apart in some sense. So what is the peace that is being accomplished that we have to look at? Let's, look at, let's flip over to Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. Somebody like to read those verses when they get there? Sure. Mm-hmm. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, mm. through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Mm. And so notice what's been reconciled to him. What was reconciled to him? That's right. 
all things. What is conveyed by the idea of all things? What's that? That's right. There's an aspect in which there is peace made between us and God, right? But there's also an aspect in which the creation itself will be fully restored to its intended order in that day, right? When he returns and he brings judgment, right? In that day, peace will truly reign in the land. If you want a picture of that, um, as far as the land itself and, and whatnot from the Old Testament, you can look at Ezekiel 36, um, Ezekiel 36, where um, the typology that's presented there is ultimately of the land being restored, no longer being used or no longer being forced to drink down uh, the blood of the sacrifices that were offered, um, the idols that were worshipped, no longer being used for those purposes. Now, that obviously would have had a fulfillment in time, right? But also, it's ultimately from a typological perspective, speaking of the new Jerusalem, the new land, that land in which we will all dwell if we are in Christ. So that is right. It conveys this idea of cosmic restoration because there's cosmic warfare. There's an aspect in which the whole universe has um, been turned upside down, as it were, because of sin. And in Christ, that gets restored. There's There's truly a a restoration between um, uh, God and man and creation, right? Any comments or questions on that? And we see that that was done how, right? It was done through his blood, right? Through his sacrificial death on the cross, this peace was obtained. And that's why it's, you know, when I looked at it and I drew that first image up there, it's because we have to understand that that is the foundation. What Christ has accomplished is the absolute foundation for there to even be peace. If he didn't make peace, we wouldn't know what peace is. That's how we know. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. There's a lot of places. I didn't even touch on um, Ephesians 4, 3 and so forth about you know, preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, but Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read 14 through 16. Does somebody like to read that? Go ahead. For he is our peace, which has made us both one, and has broken the stop of partition law in abolishing through his flesh the hatred that is the law of commandments with standards and ordinance that he makes a plan of new man of himself to make him peace. Okay, was that through 16? Oh, sorry, it was 16. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by his cross, enslaved hatred in his mm. So what do we see here? I think there's two relationships being dealt with um, in this. So one, we looked at uh, Colossians uh, 1, 19 through 20, for those taking notes. And then we looked, we're looking at now Ephesians uh, 2, 14 through 16. And I think there's two relationships that we see being dealt with here. Uh, the, the, the horizontal, right? And the vertical. Right? So in the horizontal, or in relation to the horizontal relationship, what is it that we see? What did he do? He broke down the, the hostility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. The two become one. Now think about that work that is being done, the peace that is being made there. If we know anything about Jews and Gentiles, this wasn't just like a, oh, I don't like that person, right? There was like, there's, I mean, utmost hatred, right, between those two groups. It was um, significant. And so what we see is that the Jew and Gentile uh, that absolutely hated each other and were separated by various requirements of the law because of Christ's work, right? These two were brought to be one, right? That's phenomenal. You know where we see that or a glimpse of that, I believe? Um, I'll write it over here. Again, 
Ezekiel 37, uh, 15 through, I believe, 28. If you want to read through that, there's this other typological picture in which they're speaking of two branches, Judah and Israel, right? And what he does is the, the imagery there is this aspect in which those two branches are put end to end, and it looks like not two sticks, one stick, one body, right? And there was a fulfillment in the sense that when they went back into the land, there weren't two kingdoms, okay? But typologically, ultimately, it's speaking of, I think, what we're reading right here, this aspect in which Jew and Gentile are made into one body. Um, we don't have the time to get into it, but that's a good area to, like, from a reading perspective. If you want to go back, uh, take a look at Ezekiel 36 and the whole of 37. Um, and, uh, you know, think through those passages and what is being presented there. Um, next, in relation to the vertical relationship, what is it that we see? We read, and he might reconcile them both in one body together, right? Uh, to God through the cross. So both Jew and Gentile, one new body now has peace with Christ. So in a very real sense, we have peace with God and thereby peace with each other. That is the only way that we have peace with each other. The Jews and Gentiles would have never had peace with each other. Ever think about that. We being many of us Gentile would have never had true peace with God in a sense either. But he's reconciled those two together and then thereby reconciled them to God. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else have any comments or? I just think how this is so practical for today. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know this. This is what's going on with the hostility I feel that's rising in the church. And I mean, here Paul makes it clear: the gospel is the way you have peace with a member in the body, mm. not through um, crosses and angels, right? You know, not through yeah, not through yeah. them confessing. Yeah. Sins, but no, it's through through the cross we have that peace. Yeah. I think you know many people miss that. And it's a forever peace. That's it's right. Not a cease fire. That's right. But it's true shalom. That's right. In that sense, and that word too, from based on some of the reading I've done, is talking about even in a cosmic sense, it's like it's true peace. It's it's um you know like I said earlier, not this superficial like okay, well we're just not going to talk to each other and like there's going to be peace. Um, but it's true peace where it's not like you can enjoy each other now too, that fellowship with one another. So along those lines, um, I guess I'll just erase all this here. We're going to look at now, as a result of all of this, um, what are the implications for us um, I believe this has... Um, Obviously, there's a practical aspect to this, to being a peacemaker. It's not just, okay, well, okay, we've been made at peace with God now. How does that interact now with how we live with each other? Both, there's, there's two components, right? There's uh, the world, and then, you know, we'll get to the aspect of the church over here. So in relation to the world, do we, will we have peace with the world? Huh? So no peace with the world, right? Right, so not salvific, right? Um, and their peace really isn't peace, right? It's like you tolerate my sin, I'll tolerate your sin, and we're both getting to do what we want. 
That's not peace, right? That's right. And so what we have to understand is that um, with them, like you said, I think it was Matthew, I'll write the verse here, Matthew 10. Matthew 10, um, is it 34 through 36? If you guys want to turn over there, we can take a look at that real quick. Just to make... The vertical? Let me check. Yeah, the vertical there is what we basically see in the Ephesians 2, 14 and 16, where he's reconciling the groups, the two people together, right? Jews and Gentiles. But then we also read um, that he's done this, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body, right? Um, To God. That's the vertical. Verse 16, essentially, yeah. But Matthew uh, 10, if somebody wants to read those two or those three verses. Uh, something got that? You got that? Yes. Okay. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Mm. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be remembered of his, of his household. That's some pretty strong language, right? I mean, you're even talking within your own household in a sense, being ripped apart. Now, that doesn't sound very peaceful, right? Um, But what is it ultimately conveying? What is the peace that is ultimately being established? Yeah, it's not... It's not contradictory, but it definitely speaks of the type of peace he was seeking to bring, right? It wasn't an earthly peace where we are all going to live in harmony with each other. That's impossible because the cross of Christ offends. So we have to understand that it's not an earthly peace with everybody all the time. The peace that he was coming to bring was peace between God and man, right? We're still in that militant age, right? Mm. Uh, we will never be able to achieve even religious peace mm. so long as we have a mixture of righteousness with the believer and believer. And that's why Paul says, you know, what fellowship do we have with unbelievers? Right. You know, because just the way that the nature is made, there is an inherent hostility mm. that can only be overcome uh, by the return of Christ. Right. Right, and so how along those lines then, right, we won't have that type of peace fully in this age, but how are we to be peacemakers with the world? What would that look like? Evangelism, that's right. In a sense, um, you know, I was talking with Landon about this, and he threw out this line that in a sense, you know, we're against the world for the sake of the world, right? Like that idea where, there's hostility there because of us being positionally in Christ and then being positionally in Adam, right? But um, while there's that enmity, we're still for them in a sense that knowing that the message we bring is going to be offensive, but it's the message of peace. Think of what we see, how we see it referred to. I believe it's Ephesians 6, uh, 6.15. Yeah, 6.15 and uh, Acts 10.36 it's referred to as the gospel of peace. So the good news that we are bringing is truly a good news of peace, how peace can be had. Not the peace the world offers, the superficial, okay, we're just kind of, you know, there's no, no arguing today. But true peace, where they're reconciled unto God. Mm. Right, so is, is conflict in that case okay? It's expected, right? And that's okay, right? In that sense, provided, you have to be careful. We're not going somewhere to evangelize to all of a sudden, you know, like, 
just anger people. There's still an examination of the heart that needs to take place behind why we're doing what we do. Okay? That still needs to be right before the Lord. That's what Paul says, right? We plant some water, God makes it grow, right? That, that's what we read in Corinthians. So um, I believe that's true. Yeah, and so we're actually getting to that now. This second aspect that you're mentioning of, um, I guess I'll write it up here, this, this, what is required of us? Be at peace with all men. Romans twelve eighteen. if we could turn over there. Yeah, you read Hebrews twelve fourteen, right? Romans, which we'll also get to Hebrews as well. Yeah. This is Romans 12, 18. Here we read this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. There's an aspect here in which we can only go so far to ensure peace, right? Um, one commentator put it this way, the Christian is never to take the initiative in disturbing the peace. Now, along those lines, you kind of have to distinguish. Obviously, when we go out on Saturday nights, in some sense, we're disturbing the, the peace and quiet, so to say. So in that instance, right, that would be considered, I mean, potentially disturbing the peace, right? Um, but we're never to take the initiative in like riling people up, provoking people to anger. Evil for evil, for yeah. Evil, right? Right? Loving your enemies and so forth, right? So along those lines, what is conveyed here in this be at peace with all men goes so far because we should never be complicit in sin for the sake of the pursuit of peace, right? Um, uh, So in some cases, peace will be disrupted because sin is being addressed. And that can actually take place both in the world. Like if you go and you call your family members out, right? I can't do this because you're doing this. I I can't be with you guys anymore. That's going to disrupt peace, but that's, that's okay, right? In the body, it may happen as well where you're calling out sin or you're addressing issues of sin. But in a sense there, you can truly have peace. Why? Because in Christ, you guys have both been united, right? Right? And it can be reconciled truly. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point as far as the headings. That helps kind of differentiate, you know, what we're talking about. Yeah. Right. So along those lines, with what you said with Hebrews twelve fourteen, notice it says pursue peace and sanctification or and holiness. It's like in some sense these are linked together, um, where you're not gonna. It's not pursue peace at all costs type mentality. It's not you know sacrifice holiness on the altar of peace. So just that way things are okay, right? It's um, pursue peace so far as is able to be done. Um, now, within the body, 
what does peace within the body look like? I believe um, one heading, if we want to turn over to um, Colossians, I believe Colossians 3.15, is that we are people who are ruled by peace. Colossians 3.15. We read here, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So what do you think is conveyed by the word rule? When it says to have it rule in our heart, what does that mean? Yeah, when we're talking about the peace, though, of Christ ruling in our hearts, what is actually conveyed behind uh, this Greek word is that it's a judge or an arbiter. If you even look in the actual um, margin of your Bible, it actually would probably point that out. That it's like, let peace be the arbiter. Okay? So what is being conveyed there is that essentially this, if we look at verses 12, um, I had you guys turn there, I didn't even turn there, hold on. If we look at all the things that are listed, starting with verse 12, about putting on um, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, right? Bearing with each other. Then it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What it is essentially saying is let that whatever we do, let peace be the deciding factor between us. Right? That aspect in which it is ruling us, it is, it is a, a factor in which when I choose to do what I'm going to do, is it for peace? Right? And, and I think that that'll naturally arise as we truly, like, you know, follow what we say here about putting on a heart of compassion, right? If we're truly doing those things, then peace should follow, right? But that's the idea of it ruling in our heart, is that it is the deciding factor when we look at what we're doing. Are we putting others before ourselves, essentially, right? In some case. Um, so, and this is quite simply that pursuit of peace, the desire to maintain peace, to have it be the deciding factor in our interactions with each other. Um, and I think that this is the outworking of the fact that we are one body in Christ. We have peace with him. We are one body in him. And therefore, we should seek to be at peace with one another. Especially, we should model that for the world, yeah. Mm-hmm. Next is seeking reconciliation. Now, I differentiate between um, between this as far as this is if it involves us, right? So he, where he even says, right, in Matthew uh, 5.23 and, and 24, right, if you're presenting your, offer, your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, what are we to do? What's that? Right, it's almost as if you're not reconciled, you're not at peace with one another. There's enmity, or there's strife, or, right? Go be at peace first before like you come to me. But there's also the seeking peace, um, I'll say this, also with others, or reconciliation with others that doesn't necessarily involve us. Let's turn to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we read in verse 2 of that chapter this. It says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel and so forth. Okay? So we see that between these two women, there is apparently enough strife and enough contention that Paul needed to mention it in his letter, right? But notice as he urges both of them the urge or the pleading is repeated twice. It's not one go to the other, right? It's, it's almost emphasized. Both of you work this out, okay? But in case that's not sufficient, he enlists whoever this true companion is to go and assist with the matter. And so for ourselves, there's a, um, a need, I believe, to where there may be times where we need to help assist. If we see that there's 
unreconciled parties. You know, to look to assist with the reconciliation. Why? Because we're of the same body as they are. Right? And Paul even talks about that. If one member suffers, the other member... There's a, there's, you do not want disunity. You do not want disorder. You want peace. And so we may have to be enlisted, just as this true companion was at times, to help drive reconciliation. Next, there's an aspect of denying ourselves. Denying ourselves. Now, first, we, we would understand this to obviously be that aspect in which it's going to require time, right? If we're going to go help others reconcile potentially, or we're going to take the time for ourselves to reconcile, we have to be willing to allow our time to kind of be set in upon. Oh, I planned on doing this. Now I got to go do this, right? That's, that's a, a guarantee. But what I would also draw our attention to is matters of Christian liberty, If we turn over um, to Romans 14, I know nobody can probably see this down here at this point, but Christian liberty. Paul talks about Christian liberty. It's verse uh, in in Romans 14, but specifically we're going to be looking at verse 19 in relation to this, where we read this. So then, right after going through and talking about different principles related to our conscience and so forth, he says this, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Oftentimes what we see um, in the body is, well, I got Christian liberty to go do this, and I'm going to go do this. It's what I want to do. It's my freedom in Christ. My conscience isn't burdened, right? But at the end of the day, if it's tearing down another's faith, right? Be aware of who we are around, right? Be considerate of where they stand on various issues. So that in some sense, that though we have that liberty, even Paul says, right, all things are profitable, but not all things, or all things are possible, but not all things are profitable, right? Uh, All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So who cares if you can go do this, but at the same time, you're completely tearing down your brother or sister in Christ. What does that matter then? Right? So that's where he says, then pursue peace with one another in those things. Be willing to give those things up right in that moment for the sake of others. To maintain peace. Right? That's the idea. Did you have a comment or question? That's right. Right. That's the idea of, in a sense, in some cases, putting each other's interests above our own. Right? Yeah. So Yeah, so something like that. I mean, you can't necessarily be dogmatic on the homeschool position, right? I mean, when it comes down to things like that, it is truly like okay, you know, maybe you share with them, "Hey, this is what I see in scripture," right? But it is truly, you know, that man leading his family, right? right. Um or the the husband and wife, they're in agreement on those things, right? What can you do? It's like, okay. You know, you can encourage them and exhort them to the dangers of, you know, the public school system and so forth, or the benefits of keeping the children in the house, right? But at the end of the day, you know, you're over your family. Your husband's over your family, right? And it's truly, um, in instances like that, I mean, those are tough, but their peace must be maintained. We know that. And so it's understanding that they must give an account for their children before the Lord ultimately, Right? I was trying to think of yeah. Yeah, no, it, but it's a good one. It's a good one, but you've got to remember we cannot be dogmatic on something like that necessarily, right? I know for my family I am, but it may not be that way for other families, right? 
Right, it's a lot. It's like, I, so, you know, each family has to work that out. And in some cases, we have to rest in the fact that I'm not giving an account for Landon's family in that regard. He's got to give an account for his kids, for his wife. You know, but I would exhort him. Like, this is what I think we, sh- you know, should be done. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People will not always agree with our positions, right? And I think that when it comes down to certain areas, there are certain areas you can absolutely be dogmatic in, right? That are not matters of conscience. Um, well, if somebody's like, I want to go get drunk, well, I'm sorry, like, that's not okay, right? <laughs> but if it's this, it's like, okay, well, here's what I think. You can share it with them. But at the end of the day, that's their decision for their family. You know what I mean? So ultimately, if we sum this up, you know, what we see is, how were we before Christ? Think of what he's done, right? We looked at it, he's hateful, hating one another, right? And Christ, through his work, has reconciled us to each other, to God. He's restored all things that ultimately, in that day when he returns, right, all of it's fully restored. Peace reigns. And, you know, the blessing, obviously, is that we are called sons of God. I love the verse from First uh, John 3, 1. It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And what does he say? And such we are. Isn't that amazing? We go from being completely not in peace with God, at enmity with God, hostility towards God, to being called sons of God. Mm. Truly amazing. Adopted into his family. So any final comments or questions? Yeah, I think that's good. I think the final comment then on that would be that there's nothing more the devil wants than to disrupt our peace and our unity. So let's pursue peace with one another, right? All right, let's go worship.